0: Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: I've got a little prayer here for the blessing of your gardens and your seeds. So why don't we go ahead and uh, and pray together. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord, our God, we have offered the seed that lies before thy eyes, which is a gift from thy most pure and most Bountiful hand, O Master, and we pray for it to be commended unto Thy hands, for we would not dare to cover it in the soulless bosom of the earth, if we did not heed the commandment of Thy Majesty, bidding the earth to germinate and sprout, and to render seed unto the sower and bread for food. And now we pray Thee, O our O our God, hearken unto us. We beseech Thee and open to us Thy great and good heavenly storehouse. Pour out Thy blessing that we may be satisfied in abundance according to thy true promise. And do thou drive away from us everything that devours our earthly fruit and every chastisement justly brought upon us for the sake of our sins. Send down upon all thy people the riches of thy compassion through the grace and love for mankind of thine only begotten Son with whom thou art blessed together with thy most holy, gracious, and like spirit both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Indeed, he
2: is risen. Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah. Our speaker this evening was ordained a priest in 2020 for the Maronite Eparchy of Our Lady of Lebanon. Father Michael Shammy has a license from the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome and is currently pursuing a Ph.D. at the University of Notre Dame. Father Michael serves as the Director of Liturgy for the Eparchy, is a delegate on the Patriarchal Liturgical Committee, and is the founding administrator of the Blessed Masabki Martyrs Mission in South Bend, Indiana. Please welcome Father Michael Shami.
1: Welcome, Father. Thank you very much. Blessing to have you here with us tonight. The evening is all yours. It's my pleasure.
3: I'll begin by just refreshing what my self-given prompt was for this talk, that quotation, that paragraph from the, the Catechism, and it's paragraph 460, if anyone wants to read it with me. The Word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature, for this is why the Word became man. And the son of God became the son of man, so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. For the son of God became man so that we might become God, the only begotten son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man, might make men gods. I'm sure hearing this, some people might panic on the inside it's not only a loaded paragraph, it also gives us um, really a sense that we are supposed to be called gods. And that sounds terrifying, especially if we consider, I think I entered at the right moment for the pregame, Uh, especially if we consider that moment in the garden with Adam. But this is a substantial part of the faith, of the apostolic faith, whether it be East or West. And tonight we're going to explore that. So we're going to explore divinization or deification or theosis. And I'll also go into all those different names because they're used interchangeably as well. Perhaps some of us don't know them. Perhaps some of us know them better than others. We'll cover all that. But if you have a feeling of unease, hopefully by the end of this evening, we'll at least have some of that tackled And perhaps maybe you'll even leave with a bit of interest in the subject of divinization. Often when we hear divinization or theosis, we think automatically of Easterners. Um, And the topic title of this evening is The Ground of Union, which is a title that I didn't come up with. It's the title of a book by A.N. Williams. And he writes in this book, trying to dispel the notions that prompt the very book itself and his entire uh, reason for conducting the extensive study that he does, which I'm not going to summarize it. Don't worry, you won't have to listen to a book report, but if you're interested in the subject, I recommend that you read it. The issue that he's addressing is the notion that divinization is Eastern, Latins don't believe in that. Um, And so what do we do with that? The the very notion behind that is that some guy, Gregory Paul 13th, 14th century, talks about divinization. Thomas Aquinas doesn't mention divinization. Who, what? So the objective of this little exercise is to basically look at what is divinization? What do we believe in it? William, he has a bit more time than I do. He has a couple hundred pages. Um... He does a really good extensive study. He goes through the history of divinization and the comparison of Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, is the doctor of doctors in the West, writes extensively on theological subjects, and compares his theology to Gregory Palamas. Might be a new name for you. He was a uh, Byzantine theologian monk from Mount Athos in the 13th century, 13th, 14th century. And he writes against... Uh, a certain Barlam, there are several assumptions though that I'd like to clarify, and I'd like to give us a methodology before beginning though. Firstly, there's the presumption that scholasticism is an exclusively Western idea. So really what Thomas Aquinas wrote, exclusively Western, not true, Uh, especially around the time of Gregory Palamas and the later Byzantine writers there's there's a lot of scholasticism in the East. Uh, you particularly see it with John Cabasilis as well as later Byzantine writers, but the notion that divinization is somehow Eastern, and if you're scholastic or Western, it's irrelevant. Not true. Secondly, William addresses this in his book, um, but I also recommend another book. I promise you I'm not getting paid for these advertisements. Uh, There's a great book of a professor of mine, though, called Deification Through the Cross by Khaled Anatolios. William approaches it from more of a Western perspective. Anatolios in Deification Through the Cross approaches it more through the Eastern perspective, but trying to show how Easterners obviously also believe in the significance of the crucifixion uh, for our salvation, which is something that's under-emphasized as well. But tonight... I'm going to first present you with three main errors that are done when approaching East-West topics so that we don't do them. And then I'm not going to do any three of the, any of the three of them, hopefully not. But there are three errors that I think are really common in East-West discussions. And the reason why I'm beginning with talking about East-West intersections is because this topic of divinization is an apostolic idea. It's not East and it's not West. Often a lot of the conversation revolves around, oh, it's Eastern. Oh, the West believes in some kind of sanctification through grace. You'll see it's apostolic. But first, the three errors. The first error I would like to identify is when talking about East-West theological intersections. A lot of the time, a seamless garment is woven. What do I mean by that? By a seamless garment argument, we start with the premise that there are really no differences between East and West, and they're just different expressions. Great. Then why do we have schism, and why do we have all these different churches? It's a bit disingenuous to say that there are no differences. Um, An example of that is purgatory. Some say in the East that it doesn't exist. Some say in the West that it's a dogma of the faith. Those are two mutually exclusive claims. Someone has to be right and someone has to be wrong. The task of reconciling different theological traditions is beyond the project that we're doing tonight. In fact, in theological dialogue, I would say that's the very last step of three steps. At the very end is reconciling different views. Before that is obviously identifying those differences But the very first step of a theological dialogue between East and West is really simple. Finding out what do we believe. Fact-finding mission. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to go on a fact-finding mission. What is divinization? Why should I care? And what does it do? I'm a liturgist, as you heard in the introduction. And I always had a liturgy professor who would say, The systematicians can worry about reconciling things. The liturgists just tell you what's on the manuscript. I hope that I can tell you what's on the manuscript in our tradition of the church universal. And then if there's discrepancies or dialogue to be had, that's your job. I'm simply going to bring up some of the tools of the basic beliefs that we have regarding divinization. A really neat example I also thought of that I'll just throw out of these differences is theological anthropology, which is a fancy word for how we think about our beginning in the Garden of Eden. In the Latin West, it's clear, Augustine Aquinas, man is made immortal and he falls from immortality. Amongst the Byzantines, Basil, it seems pretty clear that man is created mortal. And he relies upon this relationship with God and eating of the fruit of life to be sustained in his life. In the Syriac tradition, man is created neither mortal or immortal, and God's kind of waiting to see how he responds. These are all mutually exclusive claims. We can't all be right. How, how you reconcile those views, if they're theological opinions, etc., great, that's a subsequent step. But tonight, we're fact-finding, because often with theological discussions, we jump straight to conclusions before we even know what we're talking about. And that's that's even bishops and theologians, don't worry. So fact-finding. The second error that I will try to avoid this evening are strawman arguments in Ground of Union, which has a very good introduction and it's a really accessible book. I really do recommend it if you're interested in divinization because it doesn't assume, you know, anything and it explains everything step-by-step. William brings up the fact that, um, first of all, Palamas, who is the theologian I mentioned in the East, uh, who's kind of thought to be this exclusive source of divinization, uh, which is untrue, uh, is really, uh, The emphasis on Palamas is a 20th century Russian revival of his theology. But two of these theologians who are really big on reviving Palamas say of the Western church, the Latin church, that in the West, in Aquinas, the the West can't give any account of how creatures interact with the creator, that there's no relationship between them, that Western theology has no understanding, If you recall, in the beginning of this, I read the paragraph 460 of the Catechism. The very end of it, the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us shares in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods, is a quote directly from Aquinas. So this is why it's very important that we actually look at the sources and understand what East and West believe. Because according to Lossky and Florensky, the West doesn't believe in divinization. But it's very clear if in a paragraph about divinization that Aquinas is quoted alongside Athanasius and Irenaeus, who are the big names, the West certainly has something to say about it. So we're going to avoid straw man arguments. Even one of Palamas' main opponents, perhaps this is more of, Theological minutia, but Palamas argues against this guy Barlam of Calabria. I went to the theological, the Pontifical Oriental Institute, and we talked about Barlam all the time, and we always said he was from Calabria. You would think that he's a twentieth-century Italo-American tossing pizza and drinking espresso or something—the kind of character he was given. However, he also was a Byzantine monk, so the kind of caricatures that are created in discussion without referencing sources are problematic. That's why we always have to go back as John Meyendorf, one of the really influential Orthodox theologians of the 20th century says, we always have to go back to the sources, the source of the unity of the first centuries between East and West. And we'll, we might see that perhaps everything's not the same, but there's a great ground of union. Ding, 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 I mentioned the title. And the third error that I would like to avoid this evening is false dichotomies. Even the idea of a Greek East, hesychasm, represented by Gregory Palamas, and the Latin West represented by Aquinas and scholasticism, is a false dichotomy. When Pope John Paul II said that the church has to breathe with two lungs, East and West, Sebastian Brock, a famous Oxford theologian and classicist, said, well, what about the third lung, the Syriac church? And one can go on and on and add Ethiopian and Armenian, but really the using the Greek East, for me, it's kind of Western, using the Greek East as representative of Syriac tradition is really just a caricature. And in fact, I once had in a lecture a student tried to put me in my place because I mentioned something about Rahner and 20th century Latin theologians. And he said, Oh yeah, well, Florensky says, and I was like, I don't care about Florensky. He's as irrelevant to me as he is to you. Florensky is once again, the Russian Byzantine theologian. So we have to be careful of false dichotomies and even more so the nuance within a tradition, because one can say, the Latin West says, but it really requires extensive, extensive, extensive qualification. Who in the Latin West? What century? When? Why? Where? Those are just three kind of considerations for my methodology. And that might seem like a lot. It might seem really complex. Don't worry, because the point of this evening, again, is fact finding. We're going to look at simple simple, simple basis for the belief of divinization in the Christian tradition, in the apostolic tradition. And the way to do that is very simple. We just have to look at Scripture, the Church Fathers, and of course, what we pray in the liturgy. Scripture and the Church Fathers, of course, are a constant guide for us, because Scripture is one of the foundations of our belief and how it's recorded. The Fathers, the authority which is transmitted to us of how they're interpreted, and the living tradition, and the liturgies, of course, our interaction with the divine, that's when we live the mysteries of Christ. A terminological note before we get to scripture, divinization, deification, theosis, I mentioned all those words. Your head might be spinning. Those are probably some of the longest words I've heard in a while. They're all used synonymously. And what's important when we talk about these three words, divinization, deification, and theosis, is that we don't allow secular connotations to color them. So usually if we talk about someone being self-divinizing or self-deifying, that means they're making themselves a god. And it's really suspect. In this context, as a working definition for all three of the words, which will be used synonymously, it can be simplified, I think, by Matthew 5, 48, or any command of Christ really, where he instructs us to approach perfection so that we might share in eternal life, theosis, divinization. Deification is the process of sharing in divine life, period. Great, we can go home. No. Scripture will hash out for us, as well as with the comments of the church fathers and liturgy, more substantially what divinization means. But to begin, it's the process of sharing in divine life. And Matthew 5.48, by the way, which I referenced by citation, is when Christ commands us to be perfect like the Heavenly Father. There is an aspect of that, of course, which I'll go into in a moment, where we already share in something of the image of God, but we're constantly trying to perfect it as well. So keeping in mind with this idea to divinization as well, what do we already have of the semblance of God, and where are we going? Those are really two important questions to reflect upon for the entirety of Christian life, mind you, and I hope you'll carry some of this through beyond this evening. But to begin with scripture, the best place to start is the beginning, Genesis 1. And if you open up to Genesis 1, just a general glance at the creation, the six days of creation. You'll see a repeated theme that when God creates, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament uh, in the midst of the waters. God said, let the waters collect in the heavens. God said, let there be the lights in the firmament. But when you arrive at verse 27... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, and he he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Though contemporary scripture studies would tell us that then what follows in Genesis 2 is a completely separate account, that's not how anyone read it, probably before the 18th century. And so in Genesis two, it says in um, verse, starting from verse six, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What's a common patristic and I'm cheating because now I'm going to give you a patristic reading of those of the creation account. What ubiquitously is said in the church fathers, in Basil, in Athanasius, in Ephraim, who take this, mind you, as one creation account, they always point out, and a lot of their writings, mind you, start out with creation, especially when talking about salvation. The thing that they point out is that when God created things, he spoke them into existence. So he said, let there be birds, let there be light, let there be the earth, let there be a firmament, But when God came to create man, he did not speak man into existence. Instead, he took something with his own hands and formed it in his own image. And from the very beginning, God has distinguished mankind from the rest of creation. Because man is the only thing that's not spoken into existence, but instead God, who wishes to make man in his very own image, picks up the dirt, molds it, and breathes into it. And from that moment, God starts a very particular display of love towards this creation, which is man. The one that's made in his likeness and in his image. There is something very particular about it. And of course, you can read Tome upon tome in the Church Fathers, what exactly that image is. Um, I'll leave that to your further explanation. But there's something particular about man, and we know it. We can see it. There's something different between the human being and a dog, as much as we might love dogs. But it's no incident that Church Fathers alike all pick Genesis to begin with in uh, create in salvation accounts. Because where Christianity differs from a lot of philosophies of its time is that God, when he creates everything, it's good. It is markedly, categorically good. He creates man in his own image. Man is in the image of God from the very beginning. Whether one disputes about his mortality or immortality, fine. That's later theological opinion. But in the way even that scripture is compiled is that this book of Genesis is put in the very beginning, which, of course, chronologically, that makes sense. But if you read any other sacred text, if you read the Bhagavad Gita, if you read the Quran, if you read the Dhammapada, they're not chronological and they don't begin with creation. Christian revelation is very particular in that it starts with this creation account. And it starts with man being the image of God. And this begins divinization or theosis, this process of aspiring to the divine nature in a correct way. Because of course, Adam also aspires to be like God in certain ways, and he's cast out, but we'll explore also what what divinization means in a proper context. Of course, I'd love to go through all the the uh, scriptures with you because that is the basis of divinization, which is a really important point. Because some people try to argue that divinization is not scriptural. Of course, it is. You can read through scripture and you can see that the divine conceit is God is trying to give us a share in His divine nature. Which, mind you, in that quotation from the Catechism, it has even a pericope of scripture in it from from the second epistle of Peter. So I'm just going to give you some tidbits to ruminate on, uh, but by by no means is this meant to be systematic. Psalm 82.6 is probably the most direct mention of divinization in scripture. And our Lord even quotes Psalm 82.6, which says, I have said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. You are gods. That's what scripture says. And when Christ is confronted by those who want to stone him for blasphemy in John 10, 34, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered, we stone you for no good work, but for blasphemy, because you have been a man making yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I say that you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of what do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into this world? Why do you say you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Christ very clearly there is saying, those who hear the word of God are gods, are the sons of God. I don't know how you can dispute that unless one wishes to dispute the words of Christ himself. Now, we'll see amongst the church fathers how that's interpreted, what that means really to be gods. But our Lord himself, in that little pericope from John Calls those who hear the word of God sons of God. And really, that's the only portion of the gospel that we'll read. But every time our Lord speaks of his promise of life, he's speaking of divinization, such as in the bread of life discourse if you do not eat of my bread or dr- uh, my body or drink of my blood, there is no life in you. But if you eat and drink of my bread, uh, body, and blood, even if you should die, and you believe in me you shall have life these are all promises of the divine life indwelling in humanity in second peter chapter 1 which we already quoted actually in the catechism 460 passage starting with verse 4 by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. These are all allusions to something very fleeting and hard to grasp. This idea that we too, humans, even after having been kicked out of the garden, God has this plan that he wants us to have divine life. He wants us to have immortality. He wants us to be free from the corruption of the world. But what exactly does divinization have to, be with, uh, have to do with that? And Romans 8, 11 has a pretty good response to that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, we hear this language of being a son of God. Flesh is associated with death, spirit associated with life. Thank goodness we have the Church Fathers to interpret these things for us, which will grant us some clarity in a moment. But before we move on to them, I'd just like to cite also Luke 18, which is probably what Byzantines think of when they think of divinization, because with Palamas in particular, there's this idea linking hesychasm to divinization, hesychasm being the idea of praying in a particular way, praying what you might have heard called the Jesus Prayer, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner, which is a composite of a couple different prayers, uh, mostly found in Luke 18. Luke 18 is uh, has a couple different parables in it, one of which is the publican and the Pharisee, where the publican and Pharisee go up to the Temple Mount and they both pray, And the Pharisee says, thank God, Uh, this is verse 9, mind you, and following. Thank God I do everything right. Uh, Thank you for making me the way you made me. And the publican, the tax collector instead, wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ says, truly, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, is justified before God. The other part of Luke 18, which is put together with it, is the blind man who calls to Christ uh, and he asks him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Combined, there's a very strong notion that this has something to do with divinization in the Byzantine tradition. And this is called the Jesus prayer, calling out to Christ in our sinfulness so that we might join his divine nature. Why does that have to do with divinization? It's this idea that we find in Paul of the constant turning away from the sin, which is death, which is of flesh, and turning towards the spirit, which is life. Sounds vague, though. And the Church Fathers, once again, will give us clarity to that. And the last part of the scripture I would like to quote this evening is um, 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 47 following. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are all those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Lo, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Again, a bit esoteric, but what is revealed in these pericopes, these selections of scripture, is that we're given some kind of promise that if we do what Christ commands us, we will share in his divine life, which is a good basis for approaching divinization. This idea that, We were made in God's image. We did something and we left the Garden of Eden, that is. But God, who created us in his love and in his goodness, now wishes to restore us to something. And in fact, not only restore us, give us something even better. That's how good God is. And scripture constantly alludes to this idea that we're of dust, but we'll be like the heavenly man. The question arises. What does that actually entail? What does it mean to be like the heavenly man? Which, of of course, Paul is referring to Christ who becomes man. And what exactly does that mean to be like the heavenly man? What does that mean? Sure, we'll be like Christ. How? So to look at a couple church fathers, and it makes sense to look at the church fathers that are quoted in the catechism paragraph that I read to you. Athanasius Basil, Irenaeus, are really good starting points for talking about divinization, and in fact some of the uh, subtle scripture interpretation I've been giving you are from Athanasius and Basil, but Irenaeus is also quoted extensively, and Irenaeus is chronologically the first of the theologians whose talks on divinization, and Irenaeus in book three, which All these, mind you, translations of the Church Fathers are available online, conveniently, if you Google search them. Irenaeus says, For it was for this end that the Word of God was made man, and he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, that man, having been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. For by no other means could we have attained to incorruptibility and immortality, unless we have been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we also were so that corruptible might be swallowed up by the incorruptible and the mortal by the immortal, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That might be a bit hard to follow and it is the divine mystery. So I understand. What Irenaeus is expressing is how could we? we, we sinned, we left the garden, we clearly have suffering in this world, we clearly have death. How could we obtain what the gospel promises? How can we have this immortality? How can we have this no suffering? How can we have the kingdom of heaven? Well, of course, we can't do it on our own, because as we've probably witnessed in our own lives, from mortal man, we have mortal children. They're born, they die, and we can't save them, no matter how much we would like to. But what Irenaeus is saying is that immortality, incorruptibility, doesn't come from man. But instead, the way God gives us this immortality and incorruptibility is that he had to unite the source of immortality, God. And that's why the beginning point of speaking of the actual granting of divinization to us is found when Jesus becomes man. Of course, from the very beginning, God had this plan that man would be special and made in his image. But God didn't want to just restore us to what we had in the garden. He had an even better plan. So when God came down and became human. He took everything bad that we were suffering, including death, and he united it to himself. Saint Ephraim gives a very beautiful image. Saint Ephraim says, it was like dirt trying to grab the sea, death trying to grab immortality. Dirt trying to grab the sea, imagine tiny piece of dirt falling into the ocean. What does it do to the sea? Absolutely nothing. That's Christ becoming human and the effects of death upon him. Absolutely nothing. He's the author of life. And so when he united his immortality to our mortality, he destroyed death for those who follow him and for those who want divine life. Athanasius, of course, the Doctor of the Incarnation, as some call him, is also really worthwhile reading. These, these little nifty patrist, popular patristic books are, are really, really worthwhile. Um, the one I just showed you was On the Incarnation, which is by Athanasius. But uh, Athanasius speaks constantly of the effects of Christ becoming man. And of course, this phrase, God became man so that man might become God, is a quote from Athanasius which is probably the most popular idea of divinization that we have, or commonly quote. And Athanasius says extensively throughout the entire incarnation how Jesus had to become man. And his entire argument is against those who say that Jesus isn't man, and those who say Jesus isn't God. He argues against them both. And to those who say that Jesus wasn't man, he says, then there's no point. God could have appeared as the sun, as the moon, as something far more impressive. But God became man so that he could unite his immortality and divinity with our mortality and destroy those things that limit us. And to those who say that Jesus wasn't God, which, mind you, at the time there were plenty of people And today, at least implicitly, there are those who say that Jesus isn't God. Athanasius says, when did a regular man dying ever save anyone? And we see it every day. When when does salvation come to us from someone, just a human being dying? Never. But it's by the death of the God-man that we're saved. Because in fact, by death, by the death of Christ, death is destroyed because death cannot destroy divinity, obviously, death cannot destroy immortality, and so it basically self-implodes. And that's what Christ promises us by divinization, a participation in this divine nature that overcomes even death itself. Death, where is your sting, as St. Paul says. And the sting is taken away by Christ. And then Basil. Basil actually, in particular, has an entire series of discourses on humanity and what it means to be made in the image. And they're very beautiful. Uh, I'll leave it to you to, to read them. But I'm just going to read a little portion from his first discourse on the origin of humanity. Again, Popular Patristics, great book series. He writes Then, how do we become according to the likeness? Through the Gospels. What is Christianity? likeness to God as far as is possible for human nature. If you are shown to be a Christian, hasten to become like God, put on Christ. But how will you put him on if you have not been sealed? How will you put him on while not receiving baptism, while not receiving the garment of incorruption, if you reject the likeness to God? So Basil here alludes to how we begin the journey to becoming like God, how we share in divinization, and that is through life in the church, through the Gospels, but Basil mentions the seal and baptism, and that seal he's referring to is the seal of baptism, um, where we put on Christ, as Galatians says, uh, Paul to the Galatians, because the, the image that Basil is working with is that we're, of course, made in the image of God, But through our sins, think of a coin, that coin keeps getting beaten, and the image on it is there. It was cast as the coin, but it gets more and more obscured to the point of being almost unrecognizable. The incarnation recasts the coin, recasts the seal. And so by putting on the incarnation through baptism, which our Lord also humbled himself to receive— We recast our coin and we re-enter into this likeness of God. But it's not enough to be recast because, of course, in the first place, we too rejected God and we beat the coin. We obscured its likeness. So it's through the gospel, then, that we continue to maintain the likeness of this coin and, in fact, perfect it. It's through the gospel, following the imperatives of our Lord, by loving neighbor and God, and repenting constantly, that we come to share in the divine life. Now, I'm just going to throw out, as, as a last section, some references to divinization in liturgy. It's replete in liturgy, and it's really important because we constantly play, pray evoking the image of sharing in a divine nature. And we, it might not occur to us, and I said I didn't want to focus on any particular tradition to give the apostolic first centuries of uh, the basis for this idea of divinization, divine life. But we're going to have to cite some contemporary liturgy. I uh, didn't have enough time to look through every ancient manuscript from the 5th century, and liturgical texts are limited. So mind you, though, the liturgies both East and West are are really full of this idea of sharing in divine nature. Byzantines in particular really love to talk about uh, Christ trampling death by death. And as you heard, Father Hezekiah said the Eastern troparian uh, at the end of his prayer, Christ is risen from the tomb or grave, there's a million translations, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. It's by Christ's salvific actions by his life death burial and resurrection that he destroys death and this is constantly sung as a refrain by the byzantines and of course baptism is really a chief place to see divinization because it is with baptism as paul says that we put on christ himself Byzantines will replace the Trisagian Holy are you a God Holy are more uh, strong one Holy are immortal one very frequently with in fact the quote from Galatians all you who have been cl- uh, ha- baptized into Christ have been have put on Christ it's not because this is just a nice idea but because in baptism we believe we truly have put on God and not in a superficial way we might think of clothing as something extrinsic or something you put on over But the idea of clothing is really substantial in the ancient world, especially when you have one robe. So the idea of putting on Christ is that that's it. Like you have assumed the divinity. And in the Syriac liturgy for the baptismal rite, it's really beautiful because in fact, the baptismal font is referred to as a, furnace of the Holy Spirit, and those who enter the furnace are clothed in the armor of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this idea of divinization that it's not only simply a relationship with Christ, because Christ is God, but by entering into the divine life, we enter into the life of the Father and the Holy Spirit as well, who are inseparable to the Son. So by entering into the baptismal font, We not only put on Christ, we put on the Father and the Holy Spirit. And in the Roman liturgy, in fact, in the baptismal liturgy, it says it very clearly. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has freed you from sin, given you a new birth by water and the Holy Spirit, and welcomed you into his holy people. He now anoints you with the chrism of salvation. As Christ was anointed priest, prophet, and king, so may you live always as a member of his body, sharing everlasting life. It's with being incorporated into the body of Christ that we share in his divine life. So long as we live in Christ, we live in the divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As soon as we reject him, we return back to what we were before him, dust, inanimate dust. The Eucharistic liturgies, of course, also have a very strong prevalence of this divine life imagery. In the Syriac tradition, during our fraction right. We pray a prayer in the Maronite tradition. You have united, O Lord, your divinity with our humanity and our humanity with your divinity. You have assumed what is ours and have given us what is yours for life and salvation of the world. It's in the mixing of Christ's body and blood with our body and blood that we take what's his because he's given it to us. And in the Roman liturgy, in fact, when the chalice is mixed, the prayer that the priest says is, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled, to share, er, he humbled himself to share in our humanity. It's not incidental that there's this relationship in the Eucharist that Christ is giving us something and we're taking it. He gives us his body and blood, not just as a sign of communion, or even the fact that we're just eating his body and blood, but by incorporating it into our bodies, we become divine sharers of that body and blood because Christ truly became man so that we might become God. God there being used as divine, not in a blasphemous way, not in an Adam aspiring to overcome any dependency on God way. We become God, as Basil said, insofar as the human nature is able, or as the Western formulation says, by grace, as opposed to by nature. It's a bit technical there, but the idea is we don't become naturally gods. We remain human beings. We're made human beings. You can't become something that you're not, but we share in the divine qualities, and that's immortality and sinlessness, or at least that's what we aspire to, And the formula for communion always says this, in fact. In the Byzantine and Syriac traditions, there are variations of each other, but there's something to the effect of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is given to you for the forgiveness of sins, the remission of debts, and eternal life. The idea is no sin, eternal life. That's the divine nature. And again, in the Latin tradition, Preconciliar tradition, The the prayer was Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuam in vitam eternam. Amen. So the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep your soul for life eternal. The idea is that the Eucharist is conferring upon you that which is being given to you. So we consume the body of Christ because we are becoming the body of Christ more and more as we hope. I would like to conclude on my uh, liturgical observations of divinization with something that's actually very thematically appropriate. And I'm I'm really glad I came in on uh, a discussion about the garden, but in the Syriac tradition, we're very creative. And so we have these debate hymns between two different characters and we do them in two choirs And so each choir is a character. And so there's a really famous one between a cherub or the cherub guarding the Garden of Eden after man is expelled, and the good thief who died on Good Friday, and now he's getting to the the gates of Eden. And the angel is telling him, go away. No one's allowed here. Who are you? Why are you here? No one told me that you're supposed to be allowed back here. And the good thief has to argue with the angel and explain to him why he's allowed back. And the cherub says, you're a thief, go away. I know you're trying to steal. You're trying to steal the tree of life. And the good thief responds, go away, cherub. Do you not know that we already have the tree of life planted on Golgotha, and we have already received its fruit? The idea there is that it is in the sacrifice of Christ that divinization is made possible, and it's in the reception of the Eucharist, of that fruit of the tree, that we have a share in divine life. It's by the adherence to the gospel and constant repentance that we constantly strive to become perfect like our Heavenly Father, and it's through listening to every word of scripture that we seek to obtain sinlessness and immortality. It's not an easy path. I can tell you that personally. But Christ has promised us a share in his divine life. And that is what we seek to obtain, not by our own merits, but by the promise of God. And that is what divinization is. Thank you very much.
2: Wow. Thank you so much, Father Michael. I have to sit back and and think about that. I mean, I think we all will, but my first reaction to everything that you've just been teaching us tonight is, wow, God is good. So thank you so much, Father. Are you ready for some questions? I'm ready. All right. Let's start with um, this question from Tom. He writes, what makes the Byzantine notion of theosis different from the concept of theosis in, say, Hinduism or Buddhism. Kath actually uh, wrote in a question as well, asking how is our understanding different from those of of the Mormons, say? So perhaps any different faith tradition in this regard, Father?
3: That's a very good question, and it's a very important question, because I think that's also what some people have a reservation for when we speak of divinization becoming gods. Um, Keep in mind, I... Just, just to clarify, just to tweak, uh, I was speaking generally about the apostolic idea of divinization. So this also includes the Roman tradition, the Syriac tradition, the Armenian tradition, etc. So it is it is an apostolic Christian idea that we believe in this divinization process. What that means is that we put on the divinity of Christ, but we remain human beings, right? We're still creatures. We're still limited we're still finite, so in as much as we're able, we aspire to being partakers of God, but that doesn't mean that we suddenly become infinite in our intellect or infinite in our ability. We're still creatures. And in fact, the idea of the Hindu um, kind of assimilation into the world spirit is illogical uh, in a sense, because the idea is you cease to be what you were Um, and that this gets into a very complex philosophical problem of the idea of like the survival of the subject. If you go from being a creature into being subsumed into the world spirit, you no longer exist. You're destroyed, Uh, which would be Hinduism. With Mormonism, the idea that's believed is that you become a god and you actually become the god of a planet. Really, that's, in a sense, not only is that illogical, it's kind of sad, because the idea of you becoming an actual god is that you no longer are in relationship with the god. And god, by definition, is superlative in all ways. There's nothing greater than god. That's what makes him god. And even the pagan philosophers like Plato talk about how they know what God is because there's one and he's the God superlative above all. That's not a Christian belief. That's just logic. Because if you have multiple gods, then then they're kind of like demi demigods. So as Christians, we believe that there's still God. We don't obtain divine nature. What we obtain is the divine life and the divine qualities. As I alluded to the Western formulation, we aspire to uh, divine life by grace. Christ has it by nature. Um, So we are, if you imagine a cup, you can only, even if you fill the cup, uh, it's not going to be as full as the ocean. You can keep pouring into it, but it's not going to contain more. I think that's a helpful way to think of it.
2: Father, another question that came in says, could you please discuss the nature of the new man in Christ as he or she is experiencing the process of divinization? What in your view is happening to the human in this process, which is not one of nature, but of grace?
3: Right. So the idea of the new man, which is an allusion to St. Paul, is that we're taking off the old man which is sin so thinking about that corinthians passage that we read we're taking off those fallen things those things of this world that we incur from sin death sadness uh limit certain limitations and we're putting on the new man the idea and the difference as our as our Uh, interlocutor says is by grace rather than nature because we are assuming something but we're not changing in terms of being divine or human. The process, this is what uh, I entirely avoided uh, in fact, um, this is where the disagreement between east and west arises or even within traditions this is where the disagreement occurs. Uh, of course, we have a very common um, idea of viewing kind of the life of sanctity is there's the kind of three-tiered uh, purgative, illuminative, etc., where one goes through different stages of a kind of um, conforming to the divine life without being assimilated which is important. We remain humans. We remain with a body. We remain with a soul. Even after the resurrection and heaven, we still have all the elements of being a human being. Um, what that entails, I think it's clear and not clear. It's following the gospel message. When we start assigning particular, um, particular stages, like pseudo-Dionysius, of having like a purgative state or an illuminative state. The idea underlying that is it's a guide, but if we think that those are actual stages that, okay, I, I leveled up, now I'm on level two, uh, it's, it's not a helpful idea of thinking of it. The emphasis in Byzantine theology, however, with divinization is that it's uh, something that's being accomplished right now. Um, so we are assuming more and more the divine life, um, which is why on a very empirical level, you can see the difference between a holy monk and someone who, uh, rejects all things of God in the West. That's less emphasized. Um, the idea there is that you're awaiting the beatific vision, um, So again, even even amongst great fathers of the church, doctors, saints, it's not necessarily agreed upon what stages and how you arrive there other than follow the gospel.
2: Um, Marie asks, is it possible for those who have never known Christ to be partakers in the divine nature since everyone was created in the image and after the likeness of God?
3: Right, I think St. Basil is quite clear when he says, how could you partake of of this divine likeness once it's been denigrated by our sin, if you reject the likeness? Baptism seems pretty necessary for the ordinary plan of salvation that Christ has brought to the order of things. Now, if someone doesn't actively reject Christ, and in fact they never knew him, Can they become sharers in the divine life? They could. I mean, God can do anything. God can, in fact, become man and unite humanity and divinity. Uh, We have ordinary means that we know of. And in fact, everyone here, uh, for better or worse, knows of the divine imperatives. And in fact, we have to follow them for our salvation. Um, Could someone who has never heard of Christ be saved? Of, well of course god can will what he wills and save who he saves um but uh, i knowing of the gospel um if i'm in a snowstorm and someone gives me a blanket i'm probably going to use the blanket uh and and likewise with with the baptism and what christ has assured us gives us life i'm i'm going to avail myself of it
2: Harold asks, were Adam and Eve partakers of the divine nature insofar as they were immortal and sinless? It is often said, he's, he writes, that we have gained through Christ much more than what Adam and Eve lost in the first place. I believe you mentioned that in your lecture tonight, Father. So could you explain a bit about how what is gained is greater than what was
3: lost? Sure. So um, already there, there's an assumption there that, that's a great question, by the way. There's an assumption there that Adam and Eve were immortal. That is a Western assumption uh, that that there's not necessarily a consensus of. I can give you what St. Ephraim says, in fact, on the gains of, of redeemed man as opposed to Adam and Eve, because it's quite clear in Ephraim, at least, what we have that Adam and Eve did not. The way Ephraim envisions the Garden of Eden is that it's concentric circles, kind of like the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies is in the middle, then there's the inner sanctum, and then on the outside, there's the outer courts. Animals all exist in the outer courts and they can't enter into the inner sanctum. Humans dwell in the kind of sanctuary median zone And Adam only enters into the Holy of Holies to make offerings to God. In the Holy of Holies is the tree of life. And this, by the way, is why Syriacs say that Adam wasn't immortal. When Adam sinned, he had to, keep in mind, go to the outer courts to hear what the serpent had to say, who was not allowed to enter the sanctuary. So he's bringing something in from outside... And then he goes to encounter God in the interior of the garden, which is by the tree of life, and he fails to live accordingly, and so he never tastes of the tree of life. That's why he dies. So right off the bat, at least in the reading of Ephraim, Adam and Eve do not have immortality because they reject God and they reject what the divine life has to offer, which is in part immortality. There's also the damage that's done there. Adam and Eve leave the garden, and there's a separation that occurs between man and God, which is why St. Paul talks about the wall that's broken down. It's not only restored, but we ourselves then enter into the kingdom of heaven. The patriarchs of old did not share in that. And in fact, even Adam was not promised the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He was promised fruit, but we, in a way, share more in the divine nature, even if Adam had not sinned. Which is why uh, the exalted in the Western tradition talks about the happy fault. Because it's by being redeemed that we obtain the wonders of heaven that Adam and Eve did not have in the garden. What those are exactly, I will tell you when I get there, hopefully. Um, but clearly even narratively what Adam and Eve share in seeing God in the garden and what we are promised in the kingdom of heaven, being the consummate bride of our Lord, there's a far difference.
2: I think we'll close it with that. Father, this was an excellent, excellent lecture and, and question and answer session. Thank you so much. Thank you. Would you be uh, willing to close us in prayer, Father?
3: Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the one true God. Amen. O God, in your love you became flesh, born of the Blessed Virgin, in a wondrous manner. You offered us to your gracious Father for adoption as his children through water and spirit. You fashioned children in their mother's wombs, yet you willingly became a child in order to renew the image of Adam, aged and corrupted by sin. You renewed him by the holy and spiritual fire of the baptismal furnace. Although you did not need to be baptized, you came to its waters in order to sanctify the waters of the Jordan. Lord God, now extend the right hand of your mercy upon these, your servants. Sanctify, purify, and cleanse them through your forgiving hyssop. Bless and protect your people and your inheritance. You have clothed us through your baptism with the robe of glory and with the seal of the holy and life-giving Spirit, and called us to be spiritual children in the second birth of holy and forgiving baptism. Now enable us by your victorious power and with the confidence of beloved children to glorify you with joyous faces, your Father who sent you to redeem us in your holy and life-giving Spirit, now and at all times, forever. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.